You're listening to episode 100 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it's 24th of June 2020 here in Norwich as the episode goes out. And if I've counted correctly, and we shouldn't take that for granted because it is me, this is apparently the 100th episode of the podcast. That's my celebratory horn to you. I'd give you a I'd give you a high five, but I'm quite far away. So you'll have to imagine the high five coming at you through the computer. Yeah, we're not allowed to do high fives at the moment. So to celebrate the 100th episode, we thought we'd look back on some of our favourite episodes from the pod over the last year and a half. So Steph, tell us about your first selection. So my first choice is uh, all the way back in episode 41, which was called Life of a Bookseller. Uh, And this was a podcast episode which was hosted by Peggy Hughes, our colleague. And she took a trip down to the Book Hive, which is one of our local independent bookshops in Norwich, to have a chat with Joe Hedinger, who is the bookseller at the Book Hive. I really like this podcast because uh, I'm friends with Joe, friends with Peggy. So it's lovely to hear a conversation happening between them. And it's a very natural uh, conversation taking place in the shop as the world is bustling and the shop is open and people are coming in and out and the phone is ringing. And I just really enjoyed that kind of natural aspect to it, I guess. I often listen to podcasts that have quite a, a natural, unscripted approach, and this very much felt like that. So Joe was one of the nominees for Individual Bookseller of the Year at the British Book Awards last year. So this is Peggy in conversation with Joe, talking about how he became a bookseller and what bookshops need to do to thrive in the 21st century. Joe, so, 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 what, how should we start? We'll just start by saying thanks for having us here at the Book Thank Hive today, Joe. Thank you for Joe. coming. It's very nice. On well, a sunny day. It's lovely, It's a isn't beautiful it? day. It is very in nice. In fact, we just said, should we just try and get down a beer garden and do, do a little chat there? But uh, it's, That no. would be great, but unfortunately I've got to <laughs> Someone's got serve to the people sell the books. They are, yeah. um, oh, oh, there's our phone wait, This is a working podcast, here people. We go. We're in a working venue mm-hmm. here. <laughs> Good afternoon, the Book Hive. <laughs> this is my favourite corner of the shop. This is the best bit, I think. Um, yeah. Who was that by again, sorry? This is where I always try and sit, where I'm at the page against the machine events. It's my, my nook. So that, I want to ask you what it, what bookshops mean to you then. What should yeah. a bookshop do and be? Um, what should they do and be? Well, they should do and be lots of different things, which is lovely, and they do, actually. Loads of different bookshops around the UK and around the world. But for me, it's a space. It's a, it's a whole experience. It's not just about having the latest books or the... A, you know, um, a good selection of classics. It's a kind of weird marrying of the product, which is the books, the building and the and the space that you're walking in and the people. And if you get those things working in a nice little soup of niceness, you end up, and it's quite intangible. I don't, I, there's almost like a kind of art slash science to it. But I think Henry's got it here. I mean, we're in this amazing building that's got all these little nooks and crannies and sneaky little corners and there's weird pictures on the walls and robots behind the deck. Um, I'm always hugely admiring of your events programme here, not just events per se, but projects and like Mm. stealthy ways to get people to encounter books and engage with reading and in new and different ways. Can you say a little bit about some, maybe take a hamp like page, maybe page against the machine, just just to give us a flavour of how you cook those things up. Yes. So this is a, this is sort of my old job and my new life coming together. And it's also just my own personal passion because um, I think reading is wonderful, obviously, for numerous reasons. And I think actually 
reading in the form of reading, sitting with a book, so a long form sort of bit of text um, printed is more important than ever before because people are reading loads by all means, but they're reading things on you know streams on their phone and stuff like that, which is fine, but it's it's skimming and the way we read is changing and that's doing all sorts of things to our brain and the way we talk to each other and the way we can reason things. So I think it's very important to read books. But that's quite a hard ask for people a lot of the time, and that's perfectly reasonable. And there's lots of reasons why lots of people don't read or don't read that often. That can be anything from, there's a strange thing in the UK, for example, that about 25% of people think you should never give up on a book. Never give up I'm on a book. Person. Well, I don't know why. No, I don't know why. That's a massive stigma yeah. that's a problem because, yeah. of course, lots of people encounter a book and they start reading it, don't get on, they think, oh, I guess I'm not a reader. Mm -hmm. And they don't bother reading anything mm -hmm. else. And that's a, that's, a, that's a disaster. There'll be other things like, I can't remember the statistics on this, but a big chunk of people find bookshops intimidating. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they they don't they find booksellers intimidating. They find the space intimidating. Um, you know, and I think a lot of bookshops have countered that by being very cosy and offering tea and stuff, which is lovely. And I think that's great. But I think that there's more to it than that. We need to really interrogate why is it that these spaces, which for so many other people they hold so dear and offer the complete opposite, you know, freedom and comfort, why would they be intimidating someone else? There's that kind of thing. So anyway, that, that's the kind of context. I'm very obsessed with that, and I think it's really important to think carefully about that and to try and work out how we can introduce people to, to more books. And I have this little thing I always say to myself, more books to more people in more ways. That's my little sort of guiding principle. The best thing about being yeah. a bookseller yeah. is being able to have the best kind of conversations all day, every day. It's as simple as that. I mean, you have no idea what people are going to talk about when they come in, but books are gateways to ideas, aren't they? And so therefore, people come in with all kinds of ideas. We've had a few podcasts actually that focus on bookshops since then. So that was talking about the book hive. We've also talked to Leanne Frid from Book Bugs and Dragon Tales. And also when you and Rasheen went up to Edinburgh, you spoke to a couple of bookshops up there. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, I just really love a bookshop, you know. I know I'm not unique in saying that, but they're such a, they have such a lovely atmosphere. Um, and at the moment, especially when I can't go into a bookshop, it's quite nice to just listen back and kind of, I don't know, just it feels like I'm there even when I'm not. Yes, uh, it's a nice little reminder of what we can look forward to when we can actually walk through the door of a bookshop and have a nice browse. Absolutely. Okay, so my first pick, and I've been very predictable in all of these, I'm afraid, for which I apologise. But my first one is way, way, way back, episode nine, which was science fiction world building with Ian Nettleton. And part of the reason I like this is that I actually did a science fiction writing course with Ian many, many years ago, probably the mid 2000s, I think. So this was long before I worked at the National Centre for Writing. And uh, it, was a, it was a great evening course with him. And then a decade later, I found myself working with him. He was now a tutor at the National Centre for Writing. I was working there. And uh, we had reason to record a podcast all about science fiction. So I basically got to sit down for an hour and just chat about sci-fi, which I, I can't really think of a better way to spend my time. That does sound like a perfect day for you, I must say. I mean, world building is important in any story, you know. Um, but with science fiction, it's of particular importance. Um, it's been described as being like the, another character in the story. And it can, the plot can be decided by the world in a way that it may not be in, say, realist fiction. I spoke to a, a, a writer of historical fiction, and I, I know I was kind of treading in kind of unknown territory for me to, to, to some degree, but I said, I imagine writing historical fiction 
I guess if you're writing, I don't know, the Victorian period, it's a little like writing science fiction. Uh, and she said, absolutely, yes, because the world suddenly becomes strange to us in the, in the early 21st century. Um, yes, and, and a lot of those details do become more, more strange. And I think you can get so carried away with the world and, and how real the science is, etc., that you forget that actually what we engage with most is the human story. Yeah. That's what interests yeah. us. I mean, I'm saying that, and I'm just thinking about, again, another film, again, 2001. The characters are hard to access. I mean, it's Kubrick kind of with his kind yeah. of mid, mid film, Film's really not concerned with them, is it? It isn't. The most human character, funnily enough, is, is the robot, is the, uh, rather, the computer, mm. Hal. Mm -hmm. And we really feel for it when his memory starts to go. It's funny um, what you're saying about you know, Star Trek doesn't have toilets. Because yeah. um, I, I was listening to an interview with Ryan Coogler, who's the director of Black Panther. Mm. Oh, yeah. And he was saying when they were you know, world-building Wakanda for that, mm. it was critical for him to show people eating. Because yeah. he was like, until you see people eating, it's not a real place. No. And it's those little background details you don't have yeah. to necessarily focus on, no. but they're critical to it. Just there's the verisimilitude you were talking yeah. about, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was thinking the other day about uh, Blade Runner, um, the, the first Blade Runner, and how Harrison Ford's character, it was it Deckard, isn't it? He's, he's ordering know, sushi or something. Or it doesn't matter what it is, anyway, you know. It, and the mix of cultures and people on bicycles. I remember watching the hang on, the bicycles. Mm. Why wouldn't there be bicycles in the you know near future? Yes, um, and that just again makes it accessible. Any world of any story really starts with the, with the, with a character. There's that term that's uh, which is objective correlative, which is that the world that we that is depicted is is reflected, is filtered if you like through the emotions of the character. If you put any character in any room, whether it's in a science fiction story or um, if you walk into the Forum in Norris, it's quite a modern building. If you haven't been out of the house for two weeks because you've had a flu virus, you walk into a big space like that and you'll feel like you're out in, you're out in space. You'll see the world around you according to how you feel and that's the same with science fiction. So uh, in the same way as uh, rituals will also be a part of that. So what do you do first thing in the morning and how do you interact with your world? So everything would actually ultimately have to be filtered through the characters. Once you put in all that effort to building a world, how do you then expose it in the story without just resorting to like paragraph after paragraph of exposition. Exposition. Every writer's challenge, I think, is how to release information without it being obvious that the information has been released. As with any story writing, I suppose, um, there are any number of devices, ways of doing that. Uh, you're absolutely right. The last thing you want is an info dump. One of the ways is, is to introduce a character who's never been there before. The stranger in a strange land kind mm -hmm. of thing. So character comes in what's this what's that you know and someone explains it to them well, you've got to be careful with that dialogue as pure exposition again it's it's, it's like dead language it's not it, it, it runs the risk of just becoming again an info dump but if they discover things that can be part of the narrative tension as they find out about this place this planet this 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 community whatever it is dialogue is a good way of releasing information as well but how you do that you want to do it dramatically. Always you want to release information dramatically. That's the best way of all. So if you have two people talking about, uh, I don't know, this alien race, if, you, if they were just saying, so who are these Vulcans? Oh, they're, um, uh, they're a race of people who are very logical and, and rarely let their emotions run away with them. Oh, really? Oh, so how does that affect their society? Well, they have a very logical society. But that dialogue is dead, on, dead in the water. It doesn't tell you anything about the characters. Uh, it's releasing information, but overtly. 
On the other hand, you could have someone say, well, what a what a Vulcan is that? What kind of name is that? Is that some, some sort of rock? Is it something to do with it? No, no, they're, they're, they're real. They're, they're, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, so come on, tell me about them. Well, they've got pointy, they've got pointy ears, really. Oh, that's great. Okay, so they've got pointy ears, what they just developed that way. And, and so you've got one person who doesn't believe the other person, they're skeptical. You've started bringing character, that, by the way, I still don't like that, it's very good dialogue, but it gives you an idea of it. And, and so if they're arguing or disagreeing about this thing, the information has been released, while at the same time there's this, there's this conflict, minor conflict, joking, mm -hmm. whatever, lack of belief, going on between these two characters. So again, that's a way of releasing information. Yeah, and it's their reactions to the information yeah. rather than the information itself. That's right. Yeah. And we don't notice the information is being released because it's, it's not overt, it's not, you know, like I just say, an info dump. So Steph, what is your second pick? So my second pick is actually from our second International Literature Showcase of 2019. And this was Val McDermott in conversation with Sean Kane from Guardian Books Online about her selection of 10 LGBTQI writers who are doing great things uh, and working in the UK today. So in this conversation, uh, Val goes through all of the writers that she's chosen, the 10 writers, gives a little bit of context to them and their work. She also talks about the limited access that she had to LGBTQI plus writers when she was younger and how that's changed. I just found it a really fascinating listen. They're two great speakers. And this list in particular, this showcase, introduced me to a lot of writers that I hadn't heard of before that I was really interested in and have since gone on to kind of look up their work and find their books and start reading them. So, yeah, it was one of my favourite showcases that we've taken part in so far. I really enjoyed watching Val's event when she introduced and revealed her 10 writers in Edinburgh last year as well. So, again, it's something that takes me back to uh, a greater time last summer. Something that's common to all of the International Literature Showcase podcast chats is that whether it's Val or Elif Shafak or Jackie Kay or Owen Shears most recently, they're all dealing and wrangling with really hefty themes and ideas and issues, mm. but they all do it in a way that is inspirational and optimistic and forward thinking. And quite easily digestible as well, I think, because as you say, it could be, you know, these are quite... These can be quite dense, heavy topics. And I think each of these showcases has been a really great, uh, I don't know, introduction and analysis of those topics. Yeah, and then obviously with the selected writers being this almost like a further reading list uh, to dive mm, deeply into those topics. And one of the reasons it felt important to me was that when I was growing up, there were no lesbian templates. So for me, it was a real struggle to to understand the possibilities of my sexuality and then to, to come to grips with them. Because there was no books, there was no films, there was no TV, there were no lesbian sports stars, there were no lesbian pop stars, uh, it, it felt very isolating and very isolated. So one of the things that lay behind the creation of Lindsay Gordon was the idea that, that there would be something that people could turn to and see a reflection of a possible life, I suppose. Um, you know, Lindsay could be your, yourself on a good day or, or indeed a bad day, um, or she could be your fantasy girlfriend or your fantasy best friend. But there was the idea that there was something out there that, that, that would make you feel you weren't the only person in the universe that felt like this. I think what's exciting is that, that this is not a, a, a battle or, or a stance we took once. It's important that... People see a continuity going forward that there are continuing to be new 
LGBTQI voices out there uh, taking taking it forward, talking about what it's like right now to live in that place in the world. Um, not necessarily books that are specifically about being gay or trans or lesbian, but that have those characters within the landscape of the world they're writing about. And what excited me particularly about this list was the the range of subject material, the range of styles. You know, we have poets, we have playwrights, we have short story writers, we have novelists. And the exciting thing is that all those voices are finding a space in the, the literary world today. It's not um, it's not like it was when I was starting out where every le- lesbian piece of work was a struggle to get published. I mean, initially I was published uh, by the women's press because there was no mainstream publishing house that was interested in publishing a lesbian novel. So, you know, there's, there's been every, every generation has its battles. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's easy now for LGBTQI writers to find a space in the published world. But the door is, is open wider than it was 30 odd years ago when I started, when there is so much hostility and so much transphobia in the conversation around the issues. I think what we all need to take a step back and a deep breath and take the hate out of the discussion. Mm. That hate takes us nowhere. The only time you actually move forward is when people listen to each other and acknowledge that other people have a valid point of view. It may not be your point of view. You may deeply, deeply oppose what they're saying and and, and the views they're expressing, but to recognise they have a right to those opinions there's a lot of us out here who need to take a very deep breath right now um, and so that, so that we can move forward in a way that's respectful and, and honourable and allows people to be themselves. There's always, as it were, the, the forefront, the phalanx out there ahead who, who are brave enough to push open the doors for the rest of us to follow. And some people say, you know, the battle's won, the war's over. But you look at the news headlines and social media on any given day and you know that's really not true. Uh, LGBT people are still bullied at school, they're still bullied in the workplace, they're still bullied in, in their social lives. We're still the targets of hate crime in so many places around the world. Our very identity, just who we are, criminalises us and condemns us. Yeah. And we have to keep moving forward. And these these are the books that are not just for LGBT readers. These are books for everybody. Uh, it's It's not just niche anymore. It's not just a ghetto writing. This is just part of the landscape that everybody should be reading, that everybody is reading. Uh, writers like Ali Smith, like Jeanette Winterson, like Alan Hollinghurst, uh, writers for screen like Russell T. Davis are opening the horizons. And you can't dismiss those writers as being irrelevant uh, at all. Uh, you know, W.H. Auden claimed that poetry makes nothing happen, and I happen to think he was a bit wrong about that. I think words change the world, reader by reader. For my second pick, I'm going to completely cheat, I'm afraid. And I'm actually going to pick two episodes, okay? But there is a reason for this. So this is, I know, I know, this is episode 33 and episode 51. So these were interviews with John Ingold of Inkle Studios and Kelsey Beecham, who was the writer on The Outer Wilds. So both of these are focusing on computer game writing. Uh, This is something I have a particular interest in, and it's a fascinating very rapidly evolving form of writing that is quite different to what we normally cover which tends to be focusing more on uh, novels and novel writing so both of these people have a huge depth of knowledge um, 
And in fact, since we recorded the episodes, uh, John's latest game came out to rave reviews and Kelsey and the Outer Wilds team have gone on to win a frankly ridiculous number of awards. So I like to think that uh, we, we got in there quite early with these interviews and they are well worth listening to if you have even the slightest inclination to try your hand at writing interactive fiction. When I was a kid, when I was about 16, 17, and we got our first computer, which wasn't a very good computer, the only thing it could run were the Infocom games, which are text-based games where you type in what you want to do and the story tells you what what happens next. And they were adventure games, really. They were kind of the prototype adventure games. And I played a lot of those, and then I found a way to make my own, and I started programming those when I was kind of in my early 20s, I guess. So I was always interested in writing, and I've written kind of stories and plays and things like that, but I would write these text-based games as well and I got very interested in that space of a game where you are inside a story delivering every kind of beat of action to that story and I'd always been trying to make these things very accessible because I felt like there were really interesting ways to tell stories and really interesting things to engage with but the problem with that kind of game is you have to know what to type in for the computer to understand what you're doing and most people don't and most people don't want to learn and that's fair enough They're, they're quite fiddly we suddenly saw that there was an opportunity to do this thing that I've been playing with for ages that I was convinced had merit, but was quite hard to get to people, but to do it in a way that was beautiful, that we could get to people. And here was this device, the iPad and the iPhone, which was in everybody's pocket and felt like a really natural place to do something interactive and reading based that just wouldn't feel like a gimmick. When So if you want to make a really strong, rich narrative experience, we felt that if we move into a text environment, we can actually deliver as good as a book can deliver. We can actually deliver the depth and complexity because we can use words just as expressively in a digital context. Whereas uh, when you try to tell a visual story, you're actually much more limited in a digital context. It's a much harder problem to solve and it still is you know 10 years later it's still very hard to get computer actors to really emote especially in a flexible fluid way whereas text you can really make it work and you can make it very variable you can make it dynamic you can make the words rewrite themselves to suit the exact context that the player has found themselves in without the player noticing that you're doing it that's not technologically hard but it's incredibly expressive we discovered that if you took these paragraphs in the game book and then broke them into their beats into their tiny micro beats and gave gave each one of those to the player instead of being tedious, which it would have been in a paper, choose your own adventure, taking these minor choices that didn't really matter and having to faff about with pages. What it felt was it gave you much more of a rhythm and a sense of time. So a scene in an original book where a character might walk into a room, have a conversation, find a thing and then go out, which you know should take about 10 minutes in real life. It would be maybe a 45 second to a minute scene in a film if you just translated it directly, it would take no time whatsoever. But if you broke it into its beats, you could make it take four, five, six turns. And that's the metric of time that the player experiences. But what we found was more and more and more that once we had this framework of small choices with small reactions building over time to create a coherent scene, we really could do a huge number of things because we had a core loop that really focused people and made them feel they were actually doing stuff so um, the way that we write our games is in a scripting language that we've built explicitly to help us do this kind of stuff and because we're in text not graphically we can afford to be more branchy and to push the envelope a bit more but 
once you have the ability to carelessly write small branching choices, you start, I think, I really do think, to discover that actually all choices can be made to matter. And we know this from life, right? There's this bizarre idea that choices in games have to be enormous but when in life did you last choose to help the granny across the road or to shoot her dog you've never made that choice ever and when we do make really big choices you know very occasionally you'll make a choice to accept a job or not accept a job or whatever and those are incredibly difficult decisions to take that are very unpleasant to take and take a long time but in life we are making choices the whole time we think when you get on a bus, you think, well, there's only there's all these seats. Which one shall I sit on? Do I want to sit near that creepy looking guy or do I want to sit near that crazy looking man over here? Or where? Oh, the, now the creepy guy is starting to talk to me. What do I do about that? Uh Oh, he's looking at my phone screen. Do I care? Do I not care? These tiny little moments of interaction with strangers that we have on the street, a shared glance, a, like a smile at someone who's got a child who's misbehaving rather than a frown at someone. Our lives are stuffed with this stuff. And it definitely affects us emotionally and it changes everything about our day and sometimes these things spin off in all sorts of directions and you find yourself having conversations with people you never expected to talk to because of a tiny thing that you did and this is the joy of it this is the joy of life this is the joy of storytelling really is is not it doesn't all have to be people banging doors down with their fists like (laughs) the little moments of interaction that bring a world to life a why we're reading anyway. Ah, so there's this whole uh, area. Some people will separate out in games the roles of writer and narrative designer. Um, I've always just kind of put them all in the same basket. So obviously I did like the text um, and the actual, you know, everything that, that's written that you're going to find in the game. But I also did a lot of work with um, like the story team was the creative director, the lead designer, and me. We didn't want to create a game that had missions that told the character, the player, where to go and what to do. We kind of wanted to give them free reign in an, in an open world and tell this very nonlinear story. And so it becomes really important to be able to write really short, economical pieces of text that are still communicating what you need them to to the player, giving them the information they need or the next clue or whatever it is, um, in the context of design, but you're also still making them really engaging and really memorable and doing, you know, actual character building and and plot development and, you know, character arcs, that kind of thing. (laughs) You know, we really wanted it to be kind of that idea of discovery and exploration in the real world where we know about a lot of things on Earth, but the more we learn, the more that changes our perspective, the more we you know, we we feel so differently about places the more we experience things there and learn about their history. So that was something that we really wanted to get across in Outer Wild. You can finish the game, but it's not really quote unquote beating the game. You know, there's no there's no combat, there's no no items, there's no customization, <laughs> you know, no experience points, nothing like that. The only the only reward you get in this game is knowledge, which is fairly unusual. Step one, if you're going to tell, technically there's a chronological order to the story. So if you're going to tell it non-linearly, especially like in an open world, um, you have to kind of accept, yeah, you can't control what piece of text the player is going to see first, um, in terms of found text, that is, um, which I think is, yeah, definitely the majority of text in the game. So unlike, well, how do I say this? 
in games, you are never going to be in full absolute control of the narrative because you don't know what your player will do. The player has much more agency in a game story than in, say, a novel, because obviously, I mean, you could argue that your, your reader is going to maybe reread stuff or um, skip pages, or maybe they're one of those lunatics that reads the last page first, which should be illegal. But <laughs> the idea behind a game story is that I, I, and this is especially, I mean, like, this is very true for me, is that I really value player agency. I think it's really enjoyable to write interactive things because I don't know what players are going to do. And in playtesting, and we did a ton of playtesting, it was really exciting to see them do really odd things where I'm like, oh, I, why, why would anyone do that? I'm really excited that the trend seems to be for a lot of studios that we're looking at ways that, you know, how can we better connect with the writing? In fact, the fact that they they have writing as a position is very exciting because a lot of times the text would just be written by maybe the designers and they typically don't have, um, <laughs> well, you've, I'm sure you've encountered this. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the National Center for Writing. Um, lots of people who aren't perhaps writers and don't write on a regular basis think, how hard can it be? <laughs> I learned so much from writing Outer Wilds that it was, it was essentially just a crash course in how to write a video game which again is why I'm floored that the writing has been as well received as it has. Thrilled, of course, but very surprised. And my final pick for this episode is episode 73, Structuring a Nonfiction Book with Ed Parnell. Uh, I interviewed Ed for this podcast um, and it was a great little chat. It was great to speak to him uh, properly in person. I'd read Ghostland his first nonfiction book just before and I really really enjoyed it and was really impressed with the way that it's structured and the level of research and detail that he goes into um so yeah I was really pleased to meet Ed we had a lovely conversation on podcast and also off podcast about uh, a few other shared interests that we have like Stephen King which was lovely um so this is uh, a great podcast for anyone who's interested in reading or writing nonfiction. Uh, and would like some tips and techniques on how to structure, research, and pitch a non-fiction book. I thought, well, if I, if I did want to write it, how would I do it? And I, I was kind of conscious that I'm not an academic mm. who's specialised in this field, and there's, you know, there, there must be very many people who are much more qualified, if you like, mm. to, to write on the subject. I mean, I, I, I knew quite a lot about it and was really interested in all of these writers and films and things. But I, I guess I wanted to bring something of myself to it. And then I kind of thought about my own family history. And this, the more I thought about it, I, I could see how lots of the writers I'd like to explore, how their lives tied into mm. places I'd been to as a kid on family holidays and things. And I say they tied in with my own kind of family story a bit. Was it hard to structure when you came to write it? Did it flow naturally? Well, Did I, you have to I, I guess it? I kind of structured it because with non-fiction you have to create this big mm. sort of pitch document mm. it's like I had this 50 page chapter by chapter document that then went mm -hmm. to the publishers yeah so I'd kind of thought about the structure now okay when I came to write it some of those chapters kind of fell by the wayside and other things new things came in and new books I wanted to look at or new films and kind of to, to an extent new kind of parts of my own kind of travels within the book mm. but I had at least kind of 
I, I had a kind of roadmap for mm. where I was going, even if I kind of meandered off it at times. Mm. But I suppose that was that was good having that because it, it's quite a long book. And mm. it was actually, I wrote, I think the book's about 100,000 words. And I think I wrote 140,000 in the first draft. I remember draft, you saying so, at the book launch that you'd actually written something that was yeah, even so, bigger. So even, you know, yeah. a sizable amount kind of went from it. So... And I guess you have to write that stuff to know that it, it doesn't... I, I, I mean, I like some of the stuff. Mm. I kind of quite miss some, Sad of, the, to see it some of the chapters that yeah. went. But I think they didn't quite... They almost perhaps seemed like a different book. Mm. Because it's a bit psychogeographic and lots of kind of travelling around yeah. Britain in it. I had to actually go and do that stuff, which... I think I had to do more than certainly I had to do more than for my novel was set in Norfolk mm. so there would be times when I'd, trip. <laughs> yeah, when, I'd, when I'd go out for the day and yeah. try and walk around the wood and get some of the atmos- atmosphere for it but this involved much more kind of structured mm. going and meandering around places so you have all of that stuff as well yeah. and then yeah then it's still but it still comes down to sitting in a room and actually yeah staring at the computer screen and thinking well I've got to actually start typing something now I mean I suppose the the good thing is that this wasn't kind of this it wasn't like ghost fiction and Mm. horror films it wasn't a a subject that I I decided I'm going to write a book about this and I know nothing about it I was I was absolutely into it from a kind of kid so and then you know more recently I'd, I'd been reading when I wasn't even thinking I was going to write such a book I was reading lots of M.R. James and mm. William Hope Hodgson and people. So it, in that regard, it, it wasn't a kind of faked interest. So I, I knew lots, I'd read lots of this stuff, mm. but obviously reading them for pleasure is slightly different. Yeah. To, I've got to reread them now and actually try and say something interesting about them. Yeah. So, but the good thing was that I kind of, I knew most of the people I wanted to talk about. They were there at some point in my head. So yeah, you were it, kind of revisiting them. Yeah, so I, I kind of, I, I had my own kind of, structure somewhere there that I was trying to follow in a weird way Mm. you describe some very personal memories and experiences in this book and how was that for you did you find writing about those moments kind of cathartic or therapeutic or difficult yeah it it was quite difficult I have to say um you know I would so I was writing about my parents who died when I was 17 and 18 um, and I suppose you don't I don't tend to revisit on the moments mm. when they were in hospital and mm. things that's something you kind of you don't really want to go back to but that was kind of I, I, I did feel that I, I had to go back to it for this um, you know I was like a character in an M.R. James story who's digging into the past and you know they, they probably shouldn't do it but they're kind of compelled to I've, I felt a bit like that but that, that was really tough because I hadn't I hadn't not thought about it but you, you tend to because it's upsetting mm. you don't really what's to gain from it but I suppose I, I, I actually I'm, I'm pleased I did because it, it felt like a long time's past and I it probably did me good to think about it again I mean I don't I don't really believe in this kind of that that kind of slightly vacuous sort of concept of closure that mm, people mm, have. I yeah, don't think yeah, there's such a no. thing. I don't think you can get closure. I think there's probably, there was a little bit of catharsis in there mm. and there was, but then also it was a bit kind of upsetting as well. You know, there would be mm. certain times I'd be writing this stuff and thinking, and I still then wonder, well, you know, should I have, I'm not sure I should have written about it, but I think on balance, 
it was right to do mm. and I'm, I'm pleased that I did I think you know if I don't write about it no one else is ever going yeah. to write about it and I kind of it felt almost like a sacred duty to yeah. kind of try and bring my parents give them some kind of presence on a page because I kind of feel like I'm the like the last guardian yeah. of their memory yeah. really so yeah, that, that kind of felt and I, I wanted it more to be about kind of nicer memories in there mm. um, but yeah I guess I couldn't avoid the kind of the more kind of mm. troubling elements because mm. with the nature of the book really so yeah. but yeah it was it was tough to do but I think I think it was kind of worthwhile the right thing to do I yeah. think so yeah. yeah right so my last pick is a relatively recent pod actually it's episode 84 which is Joe Dunthorne talking to Jenny Offill. So there's kind of two reasons for this. One is that it's a really fantastic chat and Joe and Jenny talk about all kinds of things, including Jenny's latest book, Weather, and also covering the situation that we all found ourselves in with coronavirus. So this was the first episode that we produced while under lockdown, essentially. So I think from a production standpoint, I look back on it as the point where we suddenly had to shift how we did everything at the National Centre for Writing and and kind of pivot towards new ways of doing stuff so that we could continue to make things like the podcast. And it represents our shift towards delivering the City of Literature programme online and all that kind of stuff. And Jenny and Joe obviously talk about this a lot because they were supposed to be having this event at Dragon Hall, but Jenny had been forced to cancel her UK book tour. She was still back in the States and... Uh, that's how the conversation came about but the fact that it still happened and we still got to talk to Jenny and find out about her book while putting it in the context of where we had all suddenly found ourselves means that it's uh, it's a really interesting listen and kind of represents a, a very particular moment in time I think it will be a, an interesting one to listen to a year from now. I have to say this was one of the more uplifting moments of our first week in lockdown, getting to listen to Jenny at home and uh, yeah, lifted my spirits a little bit after our event was cancelled. And as you say, it's just a really timely conversation and a great book. My shorthand is that action is the antidote to dread. Right. Um, dread being something where you're anticipating uh, terrible things happening. Um, before they've necessarily come down the pike. And that can take the form of action like we're talking about prepping where you're stocking up with you know, beans and, and rice and various things. But it can also, at least the way I wanted to explore it in this novel, um, I think there's a version that is like emotional prepping or spiritual prepping, which is trying to imagine yourself out into these possible experiences and maybe to prepare for them by trying to prepare for certain, to bring out certain qualities in yourself, which are more resilient or more um, action oriented. Mm. I, I love in the book, this strand of, is it, is, is it uh, disaster behavior research? What's it called? Yeah, disaster psychology. Disaster psychology, which is amazing about, I guess, our ability or inability to respond two situations like this can you tell us a bit about that? I, I i love those those quotes there's one um there is a period after every disaster in which people wander around trying to figure out if it is truly a disaster disaster psychologists use the term milling to describe most people's default actions when they find themselves in a frightening new situation um, which feels extremely pertinent for where we are right now 
Yes. Um, I, I now notice myself when I'm milling. Um, I, I think that I was really taken with that concept because I, I remembered that I had read um, when 9-11 happened here that lots and lots of people um, cleaned up their desks or um, did extra sort of things that you might imagine you wouldn't do in that kind of situation. And the explanation for it um, later was that your brain is so accustomed to being a pattern recognition machine that it keeps looking for a, a pattern that it's already um, seen. And so the pattern of leaving the building is of taking your stuff. And therefore, as long as you can go through that pattern, as long as you mill, you don't have to take in the gravity of the situation. It's the same reason on airplanes. They say over and over not to um, take your purse or your luggage because people will calmly stand up in the midst of a burning plane and try to open their overhead and get all their luggage down the aisle. Over and over and over again, people do this because our brain just cannot as quickly as our body recognize um, the amount of danger. Uh, so one of the things that disaster psychologists talk a, a lot about is kind of rehearsing disasters in your mind, which is a very strange thing to do. Although uh, I think those of us who are depressives are familiar with <laughs> it as a as a daily uh, a daily activity. But the idea is that if you've rehearsed in your mind, if you've rehearsed where the exits are, if you've rehearsed how you and your family will uh, somehow manage to stay all together in the same house for months, then there's a little bit more of a template in your mind and your brain doesn't um, as quickly default to fear. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because it, when you're depressed, you're told that catastrophizing is the, is a pattern of thinking to be avoided. But of course, in, right. a, in a genuine disaster situation, that's actually been a rational form of preparation for, for something you might want to. I know it's about. very strange, isn't it? I have a friend that I, I share a shrink with and I asked her what it was like when she went in the other day and she said, Oh, she's being aggressively calm. <laughs> and I thought that was, that was such a take on the way therapists, even in the middle of a disaster will sort of make you feel like, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's not an overreaction. You're like, um, yes, our yes, whole city's exactly. going to be shut down. My kids are going to be in my house and I have to go on the subway every day. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because I remember after, as you know, there's parts of weather, one section of it that takes place after the election of Trump um, in 2016. And I remember very distinctly having this feeling a few days later of anger. And I was angry that I'd ever gone to therapy and been told to stop imagining terrible things because I felt like whenever I thought before the election, I bet he's going to get elected. There's so many secret racists. I bet he's going to get elected. I'd be like, don't catastrophize. Remember the math. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then I was sort of like, there's a way in which it, it feels protective to be imagining. And so disaster psychology was the first time that I'd come across, uh, something that said, yes, uh, go ahead and do that. But what you're not supposed to do, and this, I guess, is follows with this, you're not actually supposed to think very far ahead. You know, you're not supposed to be the part of catastrophizing, which is imagining, oh my God, this will never end. Everything will, you're not supposed to sort of, the blanket statement kind of part of it is, uh, is not, not recommended. 
So there's our top six episodes. Uh, it was quite tricky to choose from them because when I was looking back, we've had so many amazing people on the podcast. You know, I was looking at episodes with Ben Okri and Elif Shafak and Antti Tuomainen, Zoe Collins, Julia Crouch. And I was like, oh, can I just have a list of like 10 episodes? But anyway. This could have gone on forever. It really could have. And uh, the idea is for the podcast to do exactly that. So we will indeed be back next week with yet more. So many thanks to all of our guests and everyone who's been on the pod for the first 100 episodes. Uh, if you want to get in touch or tell us what your favourite episode was, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre. Check out our Facebook page and find out more about everything we're doing over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. You can also now join our Discord community, which is growing all the time. Uh, this is a completely free online chat area for writers and readers where our community can come together, especially right now when we're all kind of still isolated and stuck with our distancing rules. But then even when we're back to normal, it's going to be a place where we can go and do writing sprints and share tips and techniques and take part in the book club that we run every month. So do go and check it out. There's a link down in the show notes so that you can join in. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.